Uh, really glad that you're here with us this morning. Um, if, I, uh, if I don't know you, I would like to, like to meet you. Um, if you have time afterwards, just come um, introduce yourself. I'd love to meet you. Um, if you're a guest with us, uh, we're really glad that you're here. Um, we're honored that you would choose to spend a Sunday morning uh, worshiping with us. Um, and we're going to continue on in our series, walking through the book of 1 Corinthians. Today we find ourselves in chapter 11, verse 2. So I'm going to read the text uh, that we have today, pray, and then we'll jump right in. 11.2. Now I command you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I deliver them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as a woman was made for man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourself, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him, but if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering? If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, I ask this morning that you would um, allow us to come to you and to listen to your word um, with a posture of humility, that we would trust that these are your words, these are your very words that you've given us, you've revealed yourself and your character to us through your word. So I pray this morning we would be able to put ourselves under your word and allow your spirit through the word to change our minds and our hearts and change the way we um, live, when we live this, when we leave this place. But above everything, we ask that your son Jesus would be honored um, in everything that we do this morning. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So, this passage. <laughs> um, this, uh, this, is, uh, this is a difficult passage. It's a difficult passage this morning. Um, this is um, what happens when you choose to preach through books of the Bible, verse by verse, passage by passage, right? You come to these, and it's good because you can't ignore them. We can't skip over it. That'd be awkward if we just all of a sudden skipped over this passage. It is part of God's word. It's the very breath of God breathed out. That's what inspiration means. God inspired the scriptures. Um, so this is a really difficult passage, if you're a guest with us this morning, um, you've come into a, to a difficult text. But here's hopefully what you see this morning, that we're going to try to understand what the Bible is saying to us and humbly put ourselves under that and truly trying to understand what God wants us to learn from 1 Corinthians and really what Paul was trying to say to the church in Corinth in that time. So here's what I want us to do. I want to, I want to start this morning by helping us understand maybe how we approach 
really the Bible in, in any time we open the Bible, but especially when we have texts like this. First off, we have to uh, really understand why did Paul write this? What was Paul's point, the original intention of Paul when he wrote this to the church in Corinth? That's number one. And number two, we have to ask, are there any timeless principles or truths that are clear? Is there anything in a particular passage, a difficult one especially, that we can grab onto, that we, that we see or understand or actually see in other parts of the Scripture? And, and the third thing we have to look at is, how can we take that truth that we see in that, that step two and really apply it to our culture in this time and place in our city at this moment? So that's what we're trying to do, and that's what I've tried to do this morning, um, to, this morning and throughout the week as I've prepared for this. Now, here's what I, I feel like we're doing as we come into this text this morning. It's like if you were, to, uh, you were invited to a party full of really close friends, maybe say at a house, you were a little bit late and you walked in, and they were talking about something that you had no clue what they were talking about, but they were into it. Maybe it was a story. I think we've all felt these moments. You come into a room and you're like, wait a minute, I don't even understand what's going on. You hear something, it's awkward, you haven't been in the context, you don't understand, and you have to try to catch up quickly, um, or you have to make everyone stop, which you don't do, and try to catch up, because that, that would be kind of breaking the flow of conversation. So you just try to catch on and kind of understand what's happening from the context of um, what they've been talking about all night. But these are friends that you trust, you know, and so you're welcome there. But again, it's still awkward. I feel like that's what we're doing here in this culture that Paul's speaking into. It's really difficult to understand. Okay, so what in the world is going on here? So if you ask 10 scholars what is happening with some of these cultural things he mentions, you would get 10 different answers. I've done it the last several weeks. Uh, there is little agreement on what is happening or what Paul is actually addressing in this passage. And it's widely considered one of the most difficult New, Test New Testament passages to understand, mostly because of the cultural things he mentions that we are, have a really difficult time knowing what was actually happening. But let's put this in the context of the whole book, okay? So Paul, in this section of 1 Corinthians, kind of makes a pivot point. He changes kind of directions a little bit. Um, and we're going to see in, in chapter 11 that we're in now, and then 12, 13, and 14, Paul begins to focus on the, when, when the church is gathered for worship. So when we come together in a worship gathering, Paul has some things to say about that. And he begins with this passage today. So this has a, a narrow context. The context is the worship service. And it's even more narrow than that today because he talks specifically about when men and women are praying and prophesying in the worship gathering. Okay, so that's how narrow, that's the situation that we get from Paul. That's what he is addressing um, in this passage. Now, uh, division and unity and honoring one another, that is still in the forefront of Paul's mind because that's been on the forefront of his mind all throughout the letter. So that's the consistent thing. He's still concerned about unity, being able to help one another worship, to be able to encourage one another in worship, those types of things. So here, here's the outline for this morning, and this is we're going to walk through the text in this way. Number one, we're going to look at the cultural issue as best as we can. That's the first thing. Number two, we're going to look at the theological argument that Paul centers everything around, and we'll see that in verse three. And then the third thing we're going to do is we're going to try to, try to take that, that, that truth and apply it to our day and age as best as we can um, and so we can be formed by the word in this time, this place. So the first thing, the cultural issue. 
Let's go to verse 4 because this is where Paul really gets into what's happening here. So I'm going to read this again. Every man who prays or prophesies, so that's the context, in the worship service, with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her, co- let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Once again, the focus is that men and women were praying and prophesying in the church. Okay? doesn't say they were teaching. doesn't say they were, they were singing. It's not talking about communion. That's next week that Paul's going to get into. But it's specifically praying and prophesying was happening. Now, what do we know about this culture from what we've gathered, the, the Corinthian culture? Uh, number one, um, this is a young church. So everyone in this church was under five years of age for their spiritual life. So they've been a Christian less than five years because this was a new church plant. That's how long Paul, um, the, the time between Paul first coming in the city and writing this letter. So um, these, these, these people who were converted, these men and women who were converted, were experiencing longer freedom. And they were living out that freedom, and they were enjoying the freedom that they they had that came to them by being in Christ, especially women. Because in this day and age, um, especially in worship gatherings, whether it was uh, the Jewish gatherings or the more Roman Christian kind of um, pagan religious rituals, women were often excluded from men. They would have their own thing. They were kind of often kind of pushed to the sidelines in these gatherings. And Paul is obviously saying women need to be a part of this. Women can be a part of praying and prophesying in the worship service. So there was some freedom that men and women were experiencing in this culture. Now, as as the Corinthian church did before this chapter, we see that they began to abuse this. Their freedoms, they were taking them too far, and they weren't thinking about the other brothers and sisters in the worship gathering. The other aspect of the culture, we have to remember that uh, people were being converted from all uh, backgrounds, right? We had people coming out of the Jewish background, people coming out of a Roman background, a Greek background, other backgrounds. They were all coming to this worship gathering and worshiping. And so Paul's trying to help them navigate cultural issues that came up. And obviously, head coverings was something Paul felt uh, the need to address. And we know from archaeology and history that head coverings were for sure a bigger deal then than they are now in 21st century United States. It was much more common for men and women to wear head coverings. So Paul felt the need to help them navigate how to do this appropriately in the worship gathering. So a lot of different backgrounds kind of uh, mixed up in this. And what we know from the passage, we know head coverings in some way is related to authority. For some in the church, but also for Paul, because he mentions authority connected to the head coverings here. So he wants to give them clear instructions on on when and when not to cover their heads and how that applied to men and to women. And Paul's addressing both men and women in this passage. One other difficulty that we're not going to get into, but that we'll see, you'll see if you kind of study this passage, is that you'll see the words bounce back from uh, man, husband, and wife, and woman throughout this passage. And the, the issue there is because the Greek word for, for man or husband is aner. And so that word is just used, and so you have to determine from the context the translators do, whether they're going to translate it man or husband in that particular context. Same thing for the word for woman and wife, which is gune, 
Gune, that, so it could be translated woman or wife, depending on the context. So you look at the English translations of this particular passage, um, they are bouncing around using all four of those words, the two that come out of for the man and two that come out for the woman. And so it goes back and forth, which can make this really confusing. But in the other thing, we don't see come up, the head covering thing come up again in, in the entire New Testament. This is the, the only time it comes up, so it's difficult to really understand what in the world is Paul getting at with head coverings, but we know it's related to men and women and praying and prophesying. So whatever the reason is, he offers a theological um, grounding for the instruction in this passage. Um, but he does give us a principle that we should all understand as followers of Jesus, and that is the Trinity. And he talks about this in verse 3. So we're going to pick it up in verse 2, and then we'll read verse 3 as well. So verse 2 says this. Paul says, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I deliver them to you. It's kind of an encouraging line from Paul, right? Next week he's going to get angry. We're going to see angry Paul. This week is a little bit less angry. He's just saying, hey, I commend you. Like he's, 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 he's telling, hey, this is, it's good because you remember me and maintain the traditions. Um, so probably with this issue, this means that they're doing a pretty good job, but um, he want, really it's this reminder to them that he's talking about today. This idea of traditions there is just uh, most commentators think it's scripture or the, 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 the words of God, the words from the apostles. This is what he's talking about with traditions. So here's verse three. This is the important verse. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God, okay? So this begins, the, the usage of this word head, okay? Head is used 14 times in this passage. That's a clue. It's an important idea, and we need to try to understand it if we're going to understand this passage. Now, this word for head is kafele, uh, kafele, and um, if you've done any Latin or um, in any of that, you'll notice that the kafele is a, it's, it's from the root word um, where we get a lot of words that come out of head. Cephalic, these kind of words come from that word kafele, okay? It's, it's the root of things having to do with the head. Now, there's typically four uses for this word, okay? First is physical head. And we see that in this passage because he's talking about head coverings. That's obvious. But the other uses, the other uses that's not talking about the physical head becomes a little muddy. And there's really three options for what this means. Number one, it could mean authority. Okay, authority. Head meaning authority. Number two, it could mean source. Like head meaning source. Like, uh, like the, the source of a river. Like the head of the Mississippi River. It would be like the source where the river starts, right? Um, the third idea that it could be is this idea of cornerstone. And we get this from Matthew 21. It refer, they refer, Matthew there refers to Jesus being the chief stone or the cornerstone. That word that, that's translated chief there is kafele, the same word that is translated head here. So other places in scripture, this is referred to this idea of a cornerstone. And we know that a cornerstone is the stone that you lay down first that aligns the rest of the building. It helps the dimensions. It helps everything else be built off of that. Okay, all the other stones are kind of put in their proper place because the cornerstone was laid down first. Okay, so it could mean any of those three things, authority, source, or this cornerstone idea. And commentators are in disagreement about what Paul means when he uses head in this passage. So it's probably in some way a combination of um, all three. And there are some overlap here. 
for example, headship does have some element of authority involved. Um, we see that through the rest of the scripture, but I think it's more than that. And here's what I mean. Um, for example, law enforcement in this city has authority over me. Um, elected officials have some measure of authority over me, but I wouldn't consider them my head. Like They don't have headship over me. They don't have that much influence over my life, but they are in some sense an authority in my life because of their position. Okay, So headship is It has authority built into it, but it's actually really more about responsibility and representation. It's when you enter a covenant with someone and follow through on your God-given commitments to them. It's about owning your relationship with them, both the rights of the relationship and the responsibilities. That's why this idea of headship, I think, goes further than authority, or it's got a fuller meaning than just authority. Now, we know that verse 3 is the theological center of Paul's argument. And he, once again, appeals to the Trinity here. He said, Jesus Christ and his submission to God the Father is the ultimate example behind Paul's instruction for the Corinthian church. We see that. And the Trinity is something, as followers of Jesus, we should all agree on. That's kind of one of those primary beliefs of orthodoxy, that you have to believe in the Trinity, or kind of the rest of your faith and belief system will fall apart. So it's important to note that Paul is appealing to something that's pretty firm and universally accepted in the church to the trinity and that so he's using something very concrete and um, important for them to understand this jesus he would say in this metaphor that he perfectly embodies love and humility in order to accomplish the will of another we see it in the life of christ his submission to the will of the father is the very thing that makes our salvation possible we see this in john 5 philippians 2 and all throughout the new testament He voluntarily voluntarily submits to the authority of the Father. And this is why why Paul is precisely calling all believers to imitate. He's saying, look at Jesus. Look how Jesus submitted to the Father here. You all should submit to one another and think about, as you walk these relationships out, think about how Jesus submitted to the Father. So what Paul seems to be saying in this passage is that humans um, are created as men and women, and should continue to live as distinctly men and women. There are differences in men and women. For Paul, our genders are not a social construct. They're not. They're something that they're part of our identity that God gives us at creation. The, distinct, the distinctions found in the genders in being created male and female is foundational to the image of God. So God created us male and female. In his image, he created them, Genesis says. So this is foundational to um, our understanding of humans being made in the image of God, which is a very, very important um, idea and truth. So gender difference, it should be celebrated. It should be celebrated because this is part of God's design. Now we're going to talk more about the application of what this means here in a few minutes, but let's continue on in the passage. Verse 8, For man was not made from woman, but woman for man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Okay? So verse, verse 8 here, you begin to hear um, the idea of order being played out here. Authority as well, but order uh, uh, too. Paul, and he, you can hear the echoes of Genesis 1 and 2, especially Genesis 2 in these verses, especially 8 and 9. Genesis 2 18 says this, Then the Lord God said, it is, 
It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Another, a better translation is a helper corresponding to him. A helper corresponding to him. Um, so what Paul has in mind here, he has this order from God creating man in his glory in the creation, and then um, God creating Eve, woman, through the rib of Adam, Genesis tells us. And so there's this kind of cascading glory that, in, in the fact that God creates man, um, and then God creates um, Eve, woman, from man. And so this idea of glory, he's probably getting this from Genesis. And so he points to this idea of order um, because I think he, he wants to, to see that Christian, um, um, this, this created order should be properly seen in Christian worship. Not removed, not blurred, not forgotten, but it's central to Christian worship. And this is why he goes back to Genesis 2, or he wouldn't have gone back to Genesis 2 in this passage. And then he has this, uh, if it couldn't get any stranger, he has to throw in angels here. In, in verse 10, he says, because angels are present, right? So, okay, Paul, like, what, why do you got to throw angels into this, right? Like, this makes it even more complicated, right? Well, most commentators simply think, they think it's strange, but they think what he's trying to do is just um, highlighting the importance of orderly worship. And it's the importance of that. Um, and he mentions angels participating. And we know from reading the rest of Scripture that angels are among us. Scripture tells us that. Um, angels participate. in when we worship, angels are there. They're observing. They look on. And so he's probably referring to that. He's saying what we do in worship is important because the angels are watching. The angels are watching how these creations of God are worshiping um, the, the God that they worship as well. Let's look at verse 11. Keep going. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. Verse 12, for as woman was made from man, so man is now born of a woman, and all things are from God. So Paul's kind of, what, what I think he's doing here, if, if any of the men listening to this then or now um, are getting an inflated view of themselves, he's reminding them of this idea of um, equality, and, 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 and equality in value and worth. He's saying that, wait a minute, like, yeah, in the, in the Genesis narrative, woman was made from man, but now men wouldn't exist unless they were born through a woman. Even Jesus was born of a woman. So men wouldn't exist without women, and women were, were, were created out of man. So Paul, Paul here is saying we're interdependent. We're dependent upon one another. We're equal in value and worth. So I want to say something to make sure that we're clear on this. The Bible nowhere teaches that women are inferior to men. Nowhere does it teach that, ever, that women are inferior to men. There's no sense that men are better than women because both are interdependent on one another. We need each other. Um, again, women may come from man in the Genesis narrative, but now every man that ever existed was born of a woman. Um, woman may have been created for man's sake in Genesis, it says, but without her, he cannot fulfill his role to fulfill the earth and subdue it, which is also a purpose that God lays out in Genesis. Both man and woman need each other. They are both a gift from God and to one another. Okay, That is clear, and that's what Paul's trying to say in this passage, those two verses at least. Let's continue on. Verse 13. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you? So he's appealing to nature here. 
that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him, but if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. Okay, this is clearly a cultural thing again. The long hair, the short hair, we don't have that in our culture. Most commentators just think that if you look back in general at, at cultures um, throughout history, for the most part, Paul may be recognizing that men, for the most part, had short hair, and women, for the most part, had long hair. But again, that's what commentators are guessing. Again, we have no idea why Paul brings hair into this now, and he relates this to head coverings, because then this is a cultural issue, and it's hard for us to understand. But that's what most commentators think Paul um, is saying here, but that's not with a lot of confidence, they would say. Um, Then he ends on verse 16. And he, and he ends with some kind of clear, kind of uncompromising words here. He ends strong. He says this, If anyone is inclined to be contentious, argumentative, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. So what Paul is trying to say is, don't argue about this. Don't be contentious about this. All the other ch- I've asked all the other churches uh, to do the same thing. He's basically saying he's appealing to kind of uniformity across the churches that he has planted and that, 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 are, that are going now. Um, and so Paul is saying, he's, I'm not asking you to do something that I'm not asking, I'm not asking you to do something I'm not asking the others to do as well. Okay, so um, maintain the God-given distinctions between men and women in a worship service. Or for sure, while you're praying and prophesying in the worship service, because that's the immediate context he's talking about. And we've seen this all throughout 1 Corinthians, but he's saying you don't have the freedom to do your own thing, even in the worship service. And we're going to see that for the next several weeks. You don't have the freedom to do whatever you want to in the worship service. right? There, there's, there's some things, there's some order that has to take place in a worship service. And so this is how important uh, this was to him, or he wouldn't have wasted time writing about it. And that's what we have to realize with Paul. So I want to shift gears here to that third piece of, of our outline this morning. How does this play out today? And again, this is confusing because, we, again, we're still trying to figure out what Paul is trying to say here. But one thing I think it's important to do is really defining words like authority and helper according to the way the Bible defines it, not how our culture defines it or sees those words. Take, for example, helper. Right? Genesis 2.18 says, made a helper that corresponded to him. Okay? The helper corresponding to him. This is where you've heard that word uh, complementary, com- right? That, it, it, that he made woman to correspond or complement man. Okay? So um, think about this. Um, I help, my son is five years old, Jax, and I help him a lot. So does uh, Nicole. Um, we help him with a lot of things. And it is clear that, let's just say, he, he right now he's into writing, trying to understand how to write notes and these kinds of things. And so as he's writing notes, we are trying to help him. We are helpers in that context. But if you were observing that interaction happening, you wouldn't say that in some way that I was less than Jax in that scenario. Right? I'm the dad. Nicole's the mom. She's helping him. We are helpers to Jax because he has no idea how to write. And he's learning, but he needs help with that. We need to walk alongside of him. We are, we are, we are powerful in that situation. We have power over Jax in that scenario. So a helper in the scriptures is not a derogatory word. It's not a negative word. The helper is actually used to describe God in passages. God the Father. He's actually, um, it's used, it's one of the main identities of the Holy Spirit. So I will send a helper 
to live inside of you, Jesus says in, in the Gospel of John. Helper is not a negative word in the Scripture. So if we hear that and it's negative, then we have to ask, why is that a negative connotation? Why is that negative when we hear that woman was made as a helper to a man? Let's talk about this idea of authority. Again, authority, it's a word that'll trip us up in the culture, right? More and more, I think, we grow suspicious of authority, okay? And that's, that's, I think that's probably natural for a lot of us, that we bring in experiences, we bring in failures from, from people that maybe had authority over us in our lives. So there's a lot wrapped up in this word authority. <clears throat> but <clears throat> Paul has shown us, by appealing to the relationship within the Trinity, that authority, being under authority, is not a bad thing. We see Jesus. He did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, or he didn't cling to it, but he gave himself up. This is one of the primary things that Jesus is praised for in the Bible, that he gave himself up for us. He's honored for that. He's praised for that. He's glorified for that. It's not a sign of weakness that Jesus um, submitted himself to God's authority. It's a sign of strength. So this is something we have to see. This is what authority means in the scriptures. Another aspect of authority in the scriptures is authority is never taken. It's always given by God. See, in Romans, the fact that the, 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 the governing authorities in our lives were put in those positions by God. That's what, we, that's what we think. They didn't take that authority. They were given that authority by God. So in scriptures, when someone is given authority, it comes from God. This idea of submission um, is, is not a popular word either. Now, submission is never demanded by the one being submitted to, ever. Submission is never demanded. Submission is freely given in the scriptures. Jesus freely submits to God in that situation. The church freely submits to Jesus in Ephesians 5. Submission is something that is given. It is never something that is demanded by authority figures, ever. We don't see that in the scriptures. At least that's not um, an example of godly authority in the scriptures. Um, Again, we have to continue to look at the scriptures to define these words that trip us up when it comes to this topic. Um, we can't let our cult, the culture around us, we can't let our experiences, our, our, our baggage maybe even, and I know there's a lot of baggage with this, um, affect the way we interpret scripture. We have to say, what is God saying in his word? And work hard to focus on that and then ask, okay, what does application look like? And that's what we're trying to do now, and it's clear the Bible goes to great lengths to show that these things are to be defined by the actions of the, of the Trinity, as well as Christ in the church in Ephesians 5, I mentioned. Um, so where do we go wrong with this? Where do we go wrong? And I think there's two ditches on both sides of what we're, what we're looking at here in the scriptures. <clears throat> I think um, one ditch is that, uh, that the culture pushes us towards is this, uh, I'll call it a strict hierarchical uh, position. Uh, where women are seen as inferior to men, and by nature of being a woman, they need to be under man in every area of society. And that is not what the Bible teaches. That's not what we believe as a church. That's, that's, a, that's an extreme position of an extreme application of what the Bible's actually teaching. The other ditch on the other side, I would call this an extreme egalitarianism. Big word, um, extreme egalitarianism, uh, where the differences between men and women are not recognized, the distinctions between the genders are blurred, and at the most extreme kind of version of this, um, this is where we start to believe things like gender is a social construct. 
And gender is a choice. And gender is whatever the culture kind of, what we got to walk through that and decide of that. But we know that that's not true because that robs God of his creative intent, right? God created in his goodness and is, is a blessing man and woman. Genesis 1 and 2, before sin came into the world. Now, there are issues now because sin came into the world, obviously, but God still created two genders. It's his um, design in creation. It's not a construct of, of our social environment. So these are two ditches that we need to be careful, that the culture kind of pushes against us as a church, and I think uh, the culture within kind of pushes that against us. You can find these in culture. You can also find these in the church. Okay, so gender differences are deep because God created it this way. So when we talk, we should be able to talk about gender differences in a, in a, in a calm way, in a constructive way, and not be afraid to admit that men and women are different, and we're different in some foundational ways, and we need to be talking about these things. Now, I wanna, here's a quote from Kathy Keller, um, Tim Keller's wife. She wrote this book called Jesus, Justice, and Gender Roles. Here's what she says. Justice, in the end, is whatever God decrees. Okay, That's biblical justice, God decreeing something just. So whether or not you are able to see justice in divinely created gender roles depends largely on how much, you tr- how much trust you have in God's character. If trust must be earned, hasn't God unequivocally earned our trust? With the bark on the raw wounds, the thorns pressed into the brow, your name on the cracked lips. And if God can be trusted then, gender roles with all of God's gifts to human beings are to be rejoiced in and enjoyed, not endured and resented. Okay, so she's got a strong point there. So Paul's premise here is that you can have differentiation, you can have different levels of authority in relationships without that meaning or having inferiority and superiority of indignity and value. Okay, so differences are okay. Different levels of authority are okay because we see that in the Trinity. But being, having inferiority or superiority, that is not biblical. That is not found in the scriptures. Okay, that is against God's plan for gender differences. If Paul takes this idea and applies it to the way women are gifted and encouraged to exercise public ministry within the church. It's praying and prophesying we're public. This is why I think Paul is seeing it as like such a big deal. People are watching. Angels are watching. You're doing this publicly in the church. This is part of a worship gathering. So be careful how these gender roles are seen and worked out in the context of a worship gathering. We have to be, he wants them to be sensitive to and consistent with the distinctions between men and women that God has ordained. Now, sometimes we look at the passages that refer to headship And I want to say it again, that we think that somehow this means that all women are to submit to all men. That is not what the Bible teaches, okay? As a church, just to be clear, we don't have time to go into all this stuff there. We've done this in the past, um, and you could ask me and I can point you in those directions. Um, As a church, we believe God teaches that there are differences in how husbands and wives relate in marriage, And we see that in Ephesians 5 and other places as well, but primarily in Ephesians 5. And in the church, we believe the elder role is reserved for qualified men. So these differences play out in in, in marriage and in the church as it regards to leadership. And nowhere else the Bible, we think, teaches that women are to be submissive or to have men to be in authority over them. And so sometimes this is applied way too broadly 
um, in my opinion. Um, so those are the only two places these things come into play. It's not a blanket teaching for all men and all women. It's not the case, okay? Um, now, it's okay. Jay mentioned this when he was going through talking about being a gospel-centered church and our distinctives. It's okay that you don't agree with our position on these things. It's okay. You don't have to be a member to agree, and agree with us on this. This is what we would call a, a secondary issue, but it's really, really important. But it doesn't define your membership here. But uh, we want to be open and honest. This is how we see the scriptures playing out in these areas. But if you do disagree with us in here, here's what I would encourage you. Um, disagree with us by studying the scriptures and having a biblical case um, why you disagree with us. Not through experience, not through the, the, the wind of the waves of the culture that we're in, or even the application of how we apply what the Bible says. So interpretation is different than application. Start with interpretation, and then we can wrestle through how that's applied. Renee Sproul says this kind of along these lines. There's another quote. The headship of males is to be understood in terms of responsibility more than authority. Men are not empowered to order women to conform as much as men are accountable to the spiritual health of the community. Men, as Christ-like heads, should serve, empower, and sacrifice for women. Male headship is a key principle, but it's not the, it does not exclude women from all leadership functions in the assembly or a worship gathering. Okay, So here, there's a difference, once again, between interpreting what God says through the Bible on a specific matter and the application of what the Bible says. So there's a lot um, in the application department with what we believe here that I don't agree with. Even though I would agree with really smart people and what they think the Bible says about these things, but then how it gets worked out in a church and in society, I don't agree with people that have the same view of what's actually happening. Okay? In our circles, um, we can, in the, kind of the churches we run in, there, we have this high view of God and a high view of God's word, which is really, really good and really, really important. But sometimes we end up um, devaluing women um, by putting them in, in a small box when it comes to using their gifts and working out and flourishing in ministry. So Providence Road and other churches like us need to do better in this area. We need to grow in this area, and we are were, we were committed to that, and we are always trying to be, um, to, apply, to be faithful in our application of what we think the Bible teaches. I've to told you what we think the Bible teaches in this area, but we're, we're always trying to work on applying it in a better way, in a more biblical way. So I want to speak really quickly, and then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close. Um, one example I want to give you of this is about three years ago, we, first time in the history of our church, we um, installed or appointed deacons, right? And we believe that um, the men or women can fill the deacon role, and deacon is a leadership role in the church, in our first group of deacons, we had three women that we put as deacons, and, and, and we haven't second-guessed that at all, right? That's, that's something we believe in, and we feel like the Bible gives freedom for. Um, women, I would say, if I'm talking directly to you, I would say, be strong. Embrace what the Bible says about biblical femininity. Who, who you, don't, don't be ashamed of what the Bible has to say about women, you don't have to buy into everything the culture teaches us. But find the beauty of the scriptures and how God teaches about women. Be strong. 
Look at your gifts. Know your gifts. Know how God's wired you. Find places in the church to exercise those gifts. Find leadership roles. Find leadership roles in the church and leadership roles outside the church. Find ways to extend the kingdom using your gifts. Be strong, biblical women. We need that in the church. Men, be, don't have confidence in your masculinity. The way the Bible describes men, be confident as a man as God describes it. Don't, there's a lot of pushback and there, there, there is legitimate toxic masculinity out there. It is out there. It is true. But sometimes I think we don't even know what it, how do we act like men in the culture when it, we don't, where there, there's all these landmines. Study the scriptures. Know what the scriptures have to say about being a man. Take, if you have leadership responsibilities, take those seriously. Don't lord over people. Don't use your, be willing to lay down your power for the flourishing of others, like Jesus did. We see this in Ephesians 5. Lay down his life. We're to be strong as men, but we're to be strong in how we serve others, how we empower others, how we lead others, how we're that chief cornerstone that, that kind of sets the tone for the people in our care and around us. But in no way does this mean that we're to demand submission or that we're somehow better than women, or better than our wives. Like that stuff is not, it's not good. It's not biblical. And we need to be careful of that. But this doesn't mean to be passive. Don't be afraid to be a biblical man. Look for ways to exert your leadership in a godly way as Christ as our example. And I just want to challenge both. It's okay to be a man and a woman, no matter what our culture says in this day and age. And we need to know what the Bible has to say about men and women. I'm going to close with this. I want to bring us back to Jesus here because I think this is what Paul's point is. For God to be Christ's head, it doesn't mean that Jesus was any less God. If so, the Trinity completely falls apart. That ruins our whole theological system if the Trinity is not true. It doesn't mean Jesus has an inferior status. It simply means that in his love for us and his obedience to the Father, Jesus submits himself to the headship of the Father and seeks to bring him glory in all that he does. So for us, we are called to submit our lives to Jesus. That's our calling here, to submit to one another and to Jesus as men and women. Let's pray. Father, I um, thank you for your word. Um, I thank you on something as, um, as often difficult to talk about is gender and gender differences, and there's just a lot of, of landmines out there um, when we're talking about this. I, I'm thankful that your word teaches a lot on this subject. Even though the text today is, is difficult, and I pray that, um, that uh, we've been faithful to look at your word in the way that it is, is written and presented, and I ask that you would help us. Help us apply this truth Give us humility, both men and women. Give us humility and allow us to go to the scriptures to form our view of all of the things we've talked about today. Help us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.